And when you have it, turn to Romans chapter 8. We are back there again. But we're back there for the last time. Don't want to freak you out, but the last time in 2022. <laughs> Seriously. Because next week is Christmas, and the following week is New Year's Day, where we still won't be back in Romans 8, because we're going to take a week on New Year's Day, we're going to take a Sunday to look at God's heart for our church. We're going to take a look at God's heart for the body of Christ. And I'm going to talk more about that before we're done, because this is, this tonight, today is sort of part one of, of a two-part message, and that will be part two with Christmas sandwiched in between. But I, but I say that we're going to take a Sunday to talk about God's heart for Calvary. I say that with fear and trembling, because I remember what happened in 2020. All of the churches that did January messages about their 2020 vision. Here's what we're going to do for Jesus this year. And then COVID said, no, you're not. <laughs> you, you think you are, but... Uh. I saw, I saw a meme online. I, I tried to find it again. I was going to put it up, and then I couldn't find it. But it was, it was to the effect of, okay, let's everybody just walk into 2023 nice and slow, just quiet-like, respectful, no sudden movements, nobody touch anything, and maybe, maybe we won't get hurt. If, if, if only it were that easy, right? As we turn back to Romans this morning, Paul's going to remind us that's just not the world we live in. It would be great if it were, but it's really not. It's very not. And it never has been, not since Adam and Eve crashed the universe. Romans 8, let, we're going to rewind this morning, and we're going to rewind all the way to where we started last week. Go, go to Romans 8 and look at verse 17. Paul has just gotten done saying, part of what we have in Christ, part of our inheritance, part of what we inherit with Christ is suffering. Romans 8, verse 17, we're children, and if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. And we talked some last week about why that is, some of the reasons why we suffer, some of the reasons we still suffer, even as king's kids. And we were reminded last week about what our suffering means. We were reminded of of perspective. And Paul exhorted us to keep perspective. I consider, verse 18, that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When we've been there 10,000 years, we sing sometimes. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've just begun. 10,000 years is just the beginning of eternity. But when we've been there, just, just for the opening act, just for, for, for that preliminary part of our eternity, we'll look back at this life. And, and, if, and if our life in this world stretches to 100 years, when we've made it to 10,000 years of eternity, we're going to look back and say, well, that was a rough night. Yeah, I didn't sleep well that night. Because by the time we get to 10,000 years, 100 years, do the math, will be 1% of our lives. And as we continue in eternity, as 10,000 years begets 10,000 years begets 10,000 years, this life and our experience of this life is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. But while we're in the middle of it, it's still very, very real. Because this life is the only life we've ever known. This is what's real to us. We read about the life that's to come. We read about the bodies we're going to have. We read about the kingdom that we're going to inherit. The amazing opportunity. We're going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to behold God in all his glory. But that seems such a long way off, doesn't it? Maybe not in years for some of us, but, it, but in distance. There's a huge gulf between where we are and where we're going. The life that's coming seems more than we can possibly imagine. Because it is. Our brains aren't equipped for it. I think that if we, if, if, we, if we glimpsed eternity, our minds would quite simply explode. We can't imagine the life to come. Meanwhile, this life, this life we don't have to imagine because it's real and present and painful and in our face all the time. I, I mean, it, right? This life hurts a lot of the time. Not just us. 
Verse 19, Paul tells us, in a sense, this life is painful for the whole universe. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Earnest expectation, the idea there is with outstretched neck. Standing on tippy toes, creation is looking for the return of Jesus. Like little kids waiting for Santa. Is he here yet? Is he here yet? Has he come? Has he come? Is he coming? Can you see him? Except the universe isn't waiting for Santa, it's waiting for Jesus. The revealing of the sons and daughters of God happens when we return with the Son of God. We return with Jesus. Sons of God, children of God, all together, joint heirs together, returning together to rule and reign together over the earth. When the universe said, or says rather, behold the Lord, he, he, he's here with, with ten thousands of his saints. He's brought friends. Jude 1.14. When the universe says, behold the Lord with ten thousands of his saints. He's come back to establish his kingdom. Verse 19. Creation is going to breathe a huge sigh of relief. Because the damage and destruction and the sickness and the sadness and the everything that came with the fall is going to start to heal. We talk about that in Isaiah. We're, we're going to get back in Isaiah um, after the first of the year. I think Rob said during announcements, this week he's finishing 2 Peter. The week after that, but the week between Christmas and New Year, we're going to have a night of worship because we haven't in a long time. And then we'll get back into Isaiah. And Isaiah, of all the books in the Bible, gives us the clearest picture of what the millennial kingdom is going to be like. Places like Isaiah 35... Just, just the first couple verses. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God, and they'll experience it. They'll receive it. It'll be imputed to them. There will be a restoration when Jesus rules and reigns in Jerusalem. And, and, and to think about it, we have, to, we have to pause and remember just how comprehensively the universe changed after the fall. Before the fall and before the consequences of the fall, no one died No one even got sick. No one grew old. No one was ever sad. There was no pain. But then humanity sinned, and God responded. Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We're going to pause there, not willingly. It wasn't the universe's idea to get wrecked. Nothing in the universe said, Oh, God, God, please will you curse me? Please? Curse me, curse me. No, the curse was because of him, God, who subjected creation to it. We read about it in Genesis 3. When God pronounced, okay, you want decay and darkness? That's what you're asking for? That's what you're reaching out and embracing humanity? Okay, you got it. That will be the world you inhabit. That will be the bodies that you inhabit. Why did I stop where I stopped? That phrase in hope, still verse 20, that phrase in hope in our new King James, I think is on the wrong side of a semicolon. I think the new American standard is a better translation. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, from slavery into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Makes more sense, doesn't it? It, it sounds more like the way that, that Paul crafts an argument. And of course, hope here is hope the same way that hope we read it in other places in the New Testament. It's not uncertainty. It's the opposite of that. It's complete confidence. We talk about living in the hope of Christ's return, right? When we say that, we're not saying, well, I... I it might happen. It would be really cool if it did. I'm not sure if it will, but 
Man, I hope it does. That's not hope the way that we read it in the New Testament. Hope is something that we have utter and complete confidence in that gives us a reason to keep going. It helps us get out of bed in the morning and get through our days. Our certainty that this world isn't all there is, that Jesus is coming back, gives us hope. It shapes our attitude. It informs our choices. And it's in the same sense that we read that word hope here. Creation is going to be delivered. How do we know? Because that was God's plan from the beginning. Salvation, our salvation, and the salvation of the universe, the redemption of the universe, was God's plan from the beginning. The cross was his plan from the beginning. Jesus, this is so important that we hang on to, Jesus was not an ambulance sent to the site of a wreck to see what could be salvaged. The cross was God's plan from the beginning. We know that. We read that. God said it. And so we live in confidence that it's true. We live in the hope of Christ's return. And so, here's the point, so does the rest of creation. Verse 21 Sorry, second half of verse 20 into 21, in hope because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. When we return with Jesus in our glorified bodies, perfect bodies with no sin nature, creation will begin to cast off its sin nature. It'll return to freedom. It'll return to the innocence, to the order that it had before the curse brought chaos and confusion. Jason Lyle, Dr. Jason Lyle, who's a creation scientist I've invited to speak here next year because I know the person who does the scheduling. She's a family friend. Um, I'm hoping that we can, we, can, we can get him because he's brilliant, but he speaks in plain language. And he, when, when other scientists are talking about entropy and thermodynamics, he says, yeah, what we mean when we say that is the messed upness of the universe. You know, you look, you look this guy up, and he's written academic articles that, that, are, that are as deep and scientific as anything that anybody has written ever, but then he, he boils it down to, to, to street level. The universe is messed up. And anyone paying attention can see that, right? We know that's what the universe is like. We, we, we see it's like it's trying to be beautiful. It remembers when it was elegant and fantastic, but, it, but it, just, it just can't get out of its own way. The universe is messed up. Everyone can see it. Everybody knows it. The universe, verse 22, the universe on some level knows it. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Groans, the, the verb there implies the kind of groaning you do when you're in a situation and you don't know if or when you're ever going to get out of it. Luke uses the word in Acts to describe the situation the Israelites were in when they were enslaved in Egypt. They groaned. When is this ever going to end? Is it going to end? How is it going to end? I can't see how this is going to end. That's the universe we live in. The universe is asking, groaning, when is this ever going to be right? And, and, and we're groaning right with it because we're part of the universe. Our bodies are, 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 are physical constructs, part of creation, and we groan right along with the rest of the universe. When, Lord, when? Verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. It's like Paul, a chapter back, Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? When will it happen? David, David in, in, in Psalms, again and again in Psalms, places like Psalm 38, he says, I'm troubled, I'm bowed down greatly, mourning all the day long, full of inflammation, no soundness in my flesh, I'm feeble and severely broken, I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, my desires before you, my sighing, my groaning is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. The light of the eyes has gone from me. David groans, how long, Lord? Maranatha, Lord. Come quickly, God. And so do we. 
Paul, Paul's, Paul's saying, isn't it ironic? We're closer to glory than anyone. We're closer to God than anything because we have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us, the first fruits of our salvation. We're closer to God than anything, but, but that taste of eternity just makes us long all the more for the fullness of it. Maranatha, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We're like David, we're like Paul, we're singing, we're groaning, we're crying, we're screaming, how long do I have to wait? And sometimes it seems like it's not going to be long at all. Sometimes we, we pick up the news, we look at the headlines, and we say, it can't be long now. It's impossible, Jesus won't come back, I don't know, Thursday, Friday at the latest. There, there, there are times like that, seasons like that, aren't there? But then there are those seasons where we say, well, I don't know, maybe not. I, I, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen right away. And of course, we've talked before, imminence means just that. We can't know. We don't know. Yet there are times where, where, where eternity seems to be drawing really close to us. And that's not an illusion. That's not an accident of perception. Look again at verse 22. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation, you and I included, groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's always been like that, Paul says, and it's still like that. And 1,900 years later, it's still like that. That, that what? It's like birth pangs. Paul said. And that's not a casual idiom. Nothing in the Word of God is casual, right? Every word, every word picture, carefully chosen, including this one. Because Paul is reaching back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, right? Where Jesus talks about what the end times will be like, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, all of these are the beginning of birth pangs. In an expectant mother has birth pangs long before she goes into active labor. And Jesus says, there's going to be chaos and confusion. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, famine and pestilence and disease. And as those grow more and more common, more and more prevalent, as those episodes hit closer and closer together, as the severity increases, probably the return of Christ is coming closer. And, and there have been times over the last 2,000 years where it seems like he's right there. But, but then things seem to relax a little bit, like there's a pause, like, like we get to take a breath, like, I don't know, maybe the end of the world won't happen today. It's been the last 2,000 years of humanity. It's been the last 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, however many years there have been of human history since the fall. And creation echoes that. Creation, like Paul is saying, reflects that. I talked a lot about Martin Lloyd-Jones a couple weeks ago, and in my weekly email that week, I sent out a link to his archives, um, especially his archives on Romans, but he's got lots of other wonderful stuff. One of the things, if you, by the way, if you didn't get that email, see Pastor Rob and get signed up for Simple Church so you get cool emails. But... A couple people who got it clicked through, listened to it, and they, they reminded me something that I'd forgotten. As you listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones teach through Romans, this is back in the 40s, you can hear bombs going off in the background. He's teaching during the Blitz. You know, the, the, the Germans are bombing London, and there he is just expositing the Word of God. But, but, but on the subject, he says something really interesting about the ebb and flow that we see in nature as we stumble our way to redemption. He says, nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It comes out of the death and the darkness of all that is so true of the winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through some kind of birth pangs year over year. But unfortunately, it does not succeed. For spring always leads to summer, summer always leads to autumn, all autumn to winter. 
poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity, the futility in our translation, the principle of death and decay and disintegration that's in it. But it cannot do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing in pain, in birth pangs together until now. It's been doing so for a very long time, but nature still repeats the effort annually. I never thought about that, but there's a lot of resonance, right, between the peaks and valleys of birth pangs of a woman in labor and the peaks and valleys of, of our calendar year. Now, right now in in creation, and, and in this, this moment of creation, in this place of creation that you and I sit, this, this intersection of space and time that you and I inhabit, the return of Christ seems awfully close, right? Yes? A lot of prophecy ministries are really eager to tell us that. I borrowed that slide from one of them. And I'm not saying they're wrong. Because if we look around, wars, check. Globalism, check. Inflations, check. Plagues, check. This birth pang is awfully intense. Is this going to be the one that puts us over the top? Is this going to be the one that kicks us into active labor? Moms usually aren't sure, especially new moms. Okay, am I in labor yet, or is this still the, the, the stuff that comes before the labor? It's really hard to differentiate. Is this going to be the one that puts us into the active labor of the tribulation? Because, because that's the active labor before Christ returns, before Christ is delivered, if you will. The seal trumpets, the, or the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, coming like contractions, more and more intense, closer and closer together. The tribulation is active labor. Is this a birth pang that's, that's, that's immediately preceding the tribulation? Or is this just one of those things where they're going to send us home to the, from the hospital and say, yeah, it's not yet? We don't know. We don't know. And we've never known. In the midst of COVID, Michael Youssef and other people, but, but I remember Michael Youssef writing about the plague of Cypria. Never heard of it. That's because it happened in the mid-200s. And people still don't know exactly what it was. Some say Ebola. Some say couldn't have been Ebola. Ebola hadn't been invented yet. Whatever it was, was killing 5,000 people a day in Rome. Not the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. So obviously many multiples of that throughout the Western world. Michael Yusuf and others wrote about it, not just because, okay, that's a plague and this is a plague, but because the... the, the, the um, Plague of Cypria, brought about the Decian persecution. Haven't heard of that either, Patrick. Yeah, Decian persecution was implemented by Decius, the Roman emperor at the, to- uh, emperor at the time, who said, okay, we got to do something about this plague. Let's appeal to Jupiter, chief god of the you know, Roman pantheon. Everybody, everyone in Rome, you've got to sacrifice to Jupiter and keep sacrificing to Jupiter until he lifts this plague. Christians, surprise, surprise, were not willing to do that. So that's actually a win if you're Decius, because he says that it must be the Christians' fault. He gets to blame them. They're executed, they're imprisoned, they're tortured for not obeying the imperial edict. Churches were destroyed, Bibles were burned. Christians who were Roman citizens had their citizenship revoked. Christians who were in public office were deposed from office. Food that was in the marketplace was sprinkled commonly with wine that had been offered to idols. Why? Because they hoped that Christians would starve, unable to eat the food sprinkled with wine sacrificed to idols. All all of which which I bring up to say this. It's understandable between the plague itself and the persecution that followed, Christians of that day had to be thinking, well, this is the end of days. Jesus got to be coming soon. Turns out it wasn't the end of days. And Jesus didn't return. As so often happens, the Decian persecution was actually the beginning of revival. As Christians were driven out of Roman cities, they ended up places Christians had never been before where the gospel had never gone before, and the church grew. 
And along the way, as they encountered, as people, as Christians encountered people suffering from this illness, whatever it was, they didn't run away. Okay, some I'm sure did. But a lot didn't, and that was remarkable. It's what we do. We take that for granted. But if you, if you look at the history of medicine, hospitals were invented by Christians. That was a brand new idea in human history. To actually organize ministry to the sick. And that happened during this plague. And as Christians stopped to care for the sick, they shared the gospel with the sick. Guess what? The church explodes. And that's a pattern that repeats again and again through history. Fast forward a bunch of hundred years. I was born in 1967, which has some of you saying, wow, you old. <laughs> and has some of you saying, you're a pipsqueak. <laughs> Are you sure you're old enough to teach? I was born in 1967, just before the summer of love. Five years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, just for perspective, so the specter of nuclear war still hanging over the world. Four years after JFK was assassinated and all the questions that that provoked. The Vietnam anti-war protests are just ramping up. They're just beginning to, to really scale up. Civil rights protests are, are starting to get violent. 1967, it's a year before Robert Kennedy was killed. It's a year before Martin Luther King was killed, on my birthday, actually. And people were saying, this seems like we're, we're, we're getting ready for Jesus to come back. 1970, Hal Lindsey wrote a book that a lot of you probably own, Late Great Planet Earth, where he said, hey, look at this trend, look at this trend, look at this development, look at, 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 at this uh, uh, you know, event. If you put it all together, gosh, it looks an awful lot like what the Bible tells us to expect right before Jesus returns. Narrator's voice, Jesus didn't return. Instead, a year after that, 1971, Time Magazine did a cover story on the Jesus Revolution. The third or fourth, depending upon how you count, Great Awakening in North America. People coming to Christ by the thousands. One church alone baptizing 500 new believers a month. Calvary Chapel in Southern California. Often when things seem darkest, when it seems like things can't possibly continue, God uses those things, those events, those circumstances, those, 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 he uses them to birth a revival. Is that what's going to happen this time? We don't know. How close are we to Christ's return? We can't know, and that's the point. We're living in a dark time, no two ways about it. There is deep political division in our country. People are talking about civil war and meaning it for the first time in 50 years. There is substantial economic upheaval happening, and we're only seeing the surface of it, not just here, but around the world. For all of our technological advancement, poverty is getting worse, not better, and persecution of the church is growing every year. I don't know why I'm telling you this. You live here. You see it. We all groan within ourselves. Verse 23, we groan among ourselves. We ask ourselves, God, how long? We cry out, God, how much more? But we don't know the answer. Again, Paul's use of the word groan is, is the lament when you don't know how long. We don't know when relief will come. And listen, we don't know what form it will take. We don't know if it will come in the form of rapture or revival. Other, other memes that I saw this week that I couldn't find again when I looked for them. Pray for a revival so great, even Satan will be hoping for the rapture. And I thought it was cute. It misses the fact that following the rapture is the greatest revival in the history of the world because following the rapture is the greatest persecution in the history of the world, and those things go together. But it's not like Satan is sane about how he looks at this to begin with, so whatever. Which will come first in our lives, rapture or revival? We don't know. And since we don't know, since we can't know, not going to know until it happens, until we're in the middle of it, I don't know, maybe we should think about a different question. I think there are better questions. Like, what do we do in the meantime? 
What do we do? What do we pay attention to? What do we, what do we focus on in the midst of this birth pang that we're in? There are some obvious ways to answer the question. Obvious ways and correct ways. There's some good things we know without thinking about it hard that we should be focusing on. Jesus, for one. Jesus is the answer. The question is irrelevant. What do we focus on in the middle of a trying, travailing season? How about fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Hebrews 12.2. Never a bad time to do that, which means this is a good time to do that. Also, it's never a bad time to focus on the mission Jesus gave us. What do we focus on while we're waiting for rapture or revival? How about Jesus' instruction to be witnesses, to preach the gospel, to make disciples? How about rescuing the lost? Never a bad time to, because any day might be the last day that we get to. The one thing, you've you've heard this, the one thing we can do here that we can't do in heaven is tell people who don't know about Jesus about Jesus. Those are good and godly answers. Good and godly things to focus on as we groan our way through this life. But I think there's a third thing. There might be a fourth thing or a fifth thing. I just haven't thought of them yet. But I think there's a third thing that's worthy of our attention and our passion. Jesus, yes. The lost, yes. I think there's a third thing. The body of Christ. You're having flashbacks because we had that slide up so often during 1 Corinthians, right? It's back. Because I think that we need to be focused on the body of Christ, you and me. We need to think about and care about each other during this time. And Paul points us in that direction at the end of our passage. Look again in verse 23. Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We groan within ourselves. We are waiting for adoption and redemption, the redemption of our bodies. We, verse 24, are saved in this hope. We wait for it. Wait for Christ's return with perseverance. We, we wait for Jesus, Paul says. And the fact that he says we, we, we again and again suggests we should be waiting together. And we should be making togetherness as the body of Christ a priority. Something to which we give passion. And believe it or not, that's a controversial position. Well, we don't serve the church, we serve the Lord, you'll hear people say. Oh, don't make an idol out of ministry. Church shouldn't be the priority. Everyone at church is already saved. That can't be our priority. Our priority can't be for the saved. It has to be for the lost. I have no doubt people saying things like that, and there are people saying things like that. No doubt they're well-intentioned. also think they're a little misguided. It's a polite way of saying I think they're wrong. Or, 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 Or better, not all the way right. Do we need to care about Jesus always? Do we need to care about the lost? That is why we're here. But what does Jesus say about the church? I don't think that Jesus and the lost can be our only passions. Because what does Jesus say about the church, about the body of Christ? He says a lot of things. Let's narrow it down. What does he say first? There's a principle of biblical interpretation you might have heard, the principle of first mention. It's not an absolute. It's proverbial. It's a rule of thumb. But an awful lot of the time, the first time an idea, a concept, a doctrine appears in Scripture, the first time it's mentioned, often there are unique and important things said about it. What's the first thing that Jesus says about the church? Matthew 16, 18. He says, upon this rock, speaking of himself, he says, Peter, you're a pebble. Deal with it. Upon this rock, he says, I will build the church. Hmm. I will build my church. Right there, we know that church is important. Why? It belongs to him. The church belongs to Jesus. It's built by Jesus. It's the bride of Jesus, which is a whole other thing. But it's led by Jesus and called out of the world by Jesus. Called out of the world to do what? A lot of things first on the list. Love each other. Word for church is ecclesia. You know that. 
So you know ecclesia can be translated the called out ones. It's not the only way to translate it, but it's the most common. We're the called out ones. Called out to do what? Ask most people, they'll say, well, I guess to do the things that Jesus did. To do the things that Jesus would do if he were still here physically with us. Okay, I can get behind that. So what are those things? Whoops, what did Jesus do? Well, you know, he taught the word and he evangelized the lost. He was an example of holiness. Okay. What else did he do? Push a little harder. Well, he, he prayed and he worshiped. Oh, he ministered in the Holy Spirit. Yep, Jesus did those things. What else did he do? See, what we're slower to remember is Jesus lived in community. And he loved the community in which he lived. Jesus served with a group of guys. And, and not just guys. He, he served with men and women, disciples. And he loved the people he served with. And he calls us to do the same. One of the last things Jesus told the disciples the night before he, he died, just before he was arrested, he said to the fellowship of believers that he'd called out, he said to those who would become the body of Christ, hey guys, love each other, will you? John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you. Listen, guys, this is important. Jesus says to his apostles, dying words almost, love one another. As I've loved you, so if it's not a problem, love, no. So you must love one another. And he goes on to say, that's actually going to be your trademark. That's going to be your calling card. That's going to be your uniform. Verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. By your love for one another, other translations. And they did. That was the hallmark of the early church. Flip over to Acts chapter 2. Just go one book to the left. Go left until it stops saying Romans. And then go Acts back to chapter 2. And when you get to chapter 2, go down to the bottom. We're going to read starting in verse 42. I'm not putting it on the screen because I want you to look at this in your own Bible. You might even want to take some notes on the margin. Acts 2, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved." What did we just read? Because I read it kind of fast. They studied the word together. They worshiped together, took communion together, prayed together, ministered together, and ministered to each other. Wrap it up and, and give it one headline. Put it all under, under one umbrella. They loved each other. Those are all just different ways of loving each other. They loved each other the way Jesus taught them. They were family together. And we've lost this. Not entirely, but substantially. At least in this country. At least in this century, we've lost this concept, this imperative that Jesus has given us. I've pointed to two passages. If I had time, I could go to a dozen more. Three dozen more, four dozen. If you need me to, grab me after service and I will, but you can go there yourself. Do a word search on one another. Go to Blue Letter Bible or, or whatever Bible study software you use. Blue Letter Bible is online. It's, it's completely free. And just type in one another. You'll come up, and if, and, if, and, if, and if that, keep it even simpler, go to your search engine. Go to Google. Go to, go to DuckDuckGo, whatever. One another Bible verse. And you'll come up with a hundred different examples, a hundred different one another statements across 94 verses. 
And you know a lot of them. Love one another. Don't grumble among one another. Forgive one another. I'm not, I'm not citing chapter and verse because I, I, want, I want to convey the big picture. Encourage one another. Be hospitable to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Prioritize one another. Be devoted to one another. That's 10. Just 90 to go. I mean, think about it. 90 more exhortations besides what I just read. That really boils down to just one exhortation, one commandment that Jesus gave us. Hey, church, love one another. The lost, yes. But on your way to evangelizing the lost, love one another. 21st century American church has lost that. that not completely, but substantially. Look at mission statements. A lot of churches have a mission statement online. Not many have a, have, have a bullet point that says we love and serve each other passionately. Not many do, and even fewer actually do it. And, there's, and, there's, and there's, a, there's a reason for that. I mean, a couple reasons, I guess. The first is we still have a sin nature. We battle pride and selfishness and self-reliance. The second reason that we don't love each other the way that Jesus has instructed us to is we haven't needed to. Let's be honest, for most of us, for most of our lives, most of the time, the body of Christ has been kind of optional, a luxury, an add-on. Yeah, I get that I'm a part of the body of Christ, but I'm not being a part of the body of Christ because, hey, what's in it for me? Jesus, I need. Word of God, I need. Prayer, I need. Worship, I need. Maybe even Sunday morning, I need because it lets me do all of those things all at the same time and check my box for the week. That was sarcasm. But, but the body of Christ, see the people I'm praying with and worshiping with and studying and serving with, for, for a lot of us, for a lot of our lives, practically speaking, that's been a nice to have, not a gotta have. Not, not chucking rocks. That was, my, uh, that was my attitude for a long time. Even after I figured out that I needed to do more than just sit in my living room and listen to Bible studies. Even when I started going to a, to a church, to a fellowship, I, I still looked at people around me the way I look at people around me at a movie theater or a ball game. Ball game is actually a pretty good example. You stand up at the beginning and you sing here and at the ballpark. You, you know, you, the first thing you do is you stand and you sing, you enjoy a snack, donuts here, peanuts there. And if you strike up a conversation with the people sitting next to you, well, that's cool, but it's not a requirement. It's not why I'm here. I'm here to watch the game. I'm here to watch professionals ply their craft. And the whole, the whole culture of the celebrity pastor plays into that. And we use some of the same language. Oh, I hope he's on his game today. Oh, I hope you got to listen to this message. This was a home run. It's not what church is supposed to be. It's not who we're supposed to be. And very soon, if things don't change, we're going to need to be something else. Before long, if things continue the way they are, if this birth pain continues, community isn't going to be optional. It's going to be a necessity. If things keep spinning out politically, economically, as, as discrimination against Christians begets oppression, begets persecution, we're going to need each other. We're going to need the body of Christ. Don't get me wrong. Community was what we were always supposed to be. Jesus said so. And the disciples believed him, so they did so. We just read. They obeyed. That was their lives. Which, if you think about it, allowed them to keep being disciples. Community in the first century church is, is a lot of what helped them survive. Look again at Acts 2.47. The Lord added to the church daily. He could do that. Why? He could add to the church daily because there was a church to add to. There was a community of believers that were loving and serving and protecting and sustaining each other. A community with diverse gifts that God the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Teaching helps, exhortation, administration, leadership, wisdom, prophecy, healing, the rest. We're going to talk about it when we get to Romans 12. All of them operating in harmony. 
believers building one another up in Christ, helping the church continue, helping the church grow. Because as those in the body of Christ loved each other, they also put God's love on display. And the display of of God's love that people saw in the church drew people in. See, to those who would say we don't have time to be church, we have to focus on the lost, we have to prioritize evangelism, I would simply ask, what does the Bible tell us? What does Jesus say is God's method of evangelism? I think it's the church. Being the church. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. I wasn't even before COVID. Now I'm really not. But I think if I were, my 2023 resolution would be from the end of our text this morning. Those last couple of verses that Paul gives us. We who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We who groan within ourselves. We who are waiting. We who are saved. We who wait with perseverance. One word, we. I mentioned that to, to someone. I was just kind of sounding boarding, soundboarding some of my message, bouncing things off. And, and, and they said, you know, you, you, you could make a slogan out of that. This could be 2020 we. <laughs> they, they tell me that if I plead guilty to simple assault, I probably just get probation. <laughs> I mean, come on, this isn't a motivational poster. This isn't, you know, you go to work and they have the flavor of the month. This isn't, and it's nothing the, the next trendy thing in church growth. We're talking about who God says we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to always have been. It's the clear and repeated teaching of Scripture. It's a commandment from Jesus himself. To be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, is to be part of a fellowship of believers committed to passionately loving and serving one another so that together we can be witnesses, so that together we can share and show the gospel, so that together we rescue the lost. How do we do that? That's what's waiting for us on January 1st. And, 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 and I don't have a complete answer because, because that's, that's how community works. We seek the Lord together. We hear from the Lord together. And we walk in obedience in one accord. But, but where we're going to start, because I think, I think it's where we, ha- any answer to the question, I think it's where it has to start, is what we just read in Acts chapter 2. And that's, that's where we're going to camp out on January 1st, unless the Lord turns us around between then. Or unless the Lord takes us home before then, which would be really okay with me. But before we get to Acts 2.42, here's, here's, here's something to think about between now and then. Something to think about, something to pray about. We, we, we raced through some bullet points, things that the early church did together. They kept the apostles' doctrine together, fellowship together, went to the Lord's table together, prayed and worshiped together, served together, bore one another's burdens together. But notice, go up a little higher, go up above where we started. Go to verse 40. On the way to getting there, Luke says, with many other words, he, Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, added to the church, added to those who were already believed, added to the body of Christ. In two weeks, we're going to talk about the how. This morning, we've been talking about the what. This morning, our, our landing pad is community. What are we called to be? The body of Christ. What does that mean? It's about one anotherness. How do we do that? Okay, How is waiting for us on January 1st? But between now and then, would, would you do this? Would you make sure you're ready to talk about how? Would you make sure that you're bought into the what? Luke says, hey, many received the word, the word that Peter spoken. And because Peter spoke, and because they received the word, they were ready to join the body of Christ. Okay, that was, that was the word of the gospel. That was the word of salvation. But it works for us too. Have you received what, what, what I've been putting out? Are you picking up what I'm laying down? 
that part of what we're to be about here is each other. You can think about that. You get to. <laughs> You're free agents. And in fact, Acts 17.11, later in, in, in the book of Acts, we read that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness of mind and yet search the scriptures daily to prove whether these things are so. Test what I've said. Test this, this, this thesis that, that I'm advancing. I've thrown some verses on, on the screen, but go look at them in, the, in your Bible. Read, read above them and below them. A text without context is, can just be a pretext. Make sure, decide for yourself that I'm not doing that. That this really is how we are saved together out of this perverse generation. If my words haven't convinced you, I hope that they'll provoke you to do some homework. Because what, what I'm saying is either right or wrong. It's either true or not true. And you get to decide. But if you're going to come back here on January, first, come back having decided. Do, here's, here's really what I'm asking. Don't camp out in I don't know. Don't pitch your tent in, in I'm not sure. You get to be sure. You get to know. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about how to be the body together. Between now and then, decide that that's what you want to do. Decide that's what we're called to do. Decide that that's who we are. So that together we can dig into with, with passion and with purpose what it is to be being the body of Christ. Jesus, we, we confess we haven't done great at this. Sometimes better than others, and certainly as I look around the room, some people are rock stars at this. And, 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 and others, we don't see the point. Body life is a little like prayer life, Lord. We want it, we, we see the value in it, kind of. We neglect it often. Lord, I pray as, as we look to your word over these next couple of weeks, confirm, affirm, validate that this is truth, that this is calling and commandment stuff. This is your will for us. And, and, and reassure us, remind us that the part of it seems scary. Remind us that where you guide, you provide. You don't ask us to do a thing without providing the strength, the wisdom, the whatever we need to do the thing. How do we love one another? Lord, I'm not a loving person. But then we remember you'll make us the people that we need to be. You'll supply the love. You're the means and you're the motive. So Lord, stir us to love and good works to those who are outside and to those that we call brother and sister.